This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, a 2019 law legalized cannabis hospitality in Colorado, opening the doors for new types of businesses in the industry. There really isn't a limit on what type of hospitality establishment this can be. Coming up, we hear about the future of marijuana hospitality along the Northern Front Range. We'll also hear how Colorado became a leader in LGBTQ rights after years of being known as the hate state. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. On Wednesday, the Colorado Department of Revenue released updated marijuana sales figures. From January to the end of April this year, more than $760 million in total sales across the state. The sales figures underscore how well the industry is performing, even through pandemic woes. And soon, the industry will grow in terms of the kinds of businesses in the marketplace. Denver is moving forward with plans to allow cannabis delivery and for the sale of marijuana in places like restaurants and social clubs. Boulder City officials are also debating whether to allow these types of businesses. But it turns out that few other municipalities along the Northern Front Range are even considering it. Tommy Wood has been reporting on this for BizWest, and he joins us now to talk about the future of marijuana hospitality in northern Colorado. Tommy, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Can you remind us how marijuana hospitality businesses sort of became legal in Colorado in the first place? There were a pair of bipartisan bills that were passed in May 2019, one of them legalizing marijuana delivery and the other one legalizing marijuana hospitality establishments. And these bills, uh, or I guess now laws, operate much the same way as um, the 2012 amendment that legalized recreational marijuana in the first place. And, And that is that municipalities have to opt in to marijuana hospitality and marijuana delivery, just like they did with with recreational dispensaries starting in in 2012. What sort of businesses are we talking about? So you're talking about kind of a bar type environment, something that is even more heavily ID restricted than a bar, Uh, you know, some type of building that has the amount of ID controlled access that you would really see from a marijuana dispensary. Other than that, uh, you know, they could really be any type of business. They could be a a social club, you know, they could be a restaurant, a a cafe, a a coffee shop. There really isn't a, isn't a limit on, you know, what type of, of hospitality establishment this can be. How many cities have opted into allowing these types of businesses? Not many. Denver is the big one. Uh, Denver opted in earlier this spring and, and Colorado Springs has also uh, opted in. They're really the only major municipalities along the Front Range that have done so. Longmont and Superior both allow medical marijuana delivery, but not recreational and not hospitality establishments. And to be honest, it's really not looking like this is a very popular idea among many Front Range municipalities. And I think you'll see a lot you know, over the coming years, either choose not to pursue the issue at all, or if they do, choose to continue to opt out. Many communities, uh, when marijuana was legalized, kind of wanted to see other communities go through it first. Could we be seeing some of that in northern Colorado? Yeah, that is a big factor. Um, in fact, that that's currently happening in Boulder right now, that the Boulder Cannabis Licensing and Advisory Board has been debating at its past two monthly meetings about allowing marijuana hospitality businesses in Boulder. Um, They are still debating that. They had their most recent meeting on uh, Monday. And after several more hours of discussion about marijuana hospitality, they 
continued that discussion to their meeting next month because they, they simply want to hear more, you know, expert testimony kind of about their potential effects of, you know, marijuana smoke indoors. And yeah, the idea that Boulder kind of wants to wait to see how it goes in Denver is something that that uh, exists out there because there is, you know, at least within the Boulder Cannabis Licensing and Advisory Board, which is, you know, Boulder is the one municipality along the front range that is heavily considering this right now. You know, there's there's a lot of skepticism and, and hesitation uh, amongst the board members about uh, whether or not this is really a good idea. Tommy Wood is a reporter for Biz West. Tommy, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. If you're a Colorado sports fan, then the last few days may have been riddled with some playoffs anxiety. The Denver Nuggets fell two games behind the Phoenix Suns in the NBA Western Conference semifinals. Over to the world of hockey, the Avalanche haven't quite lived up to expectations for a lot of fans in their series against the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Over to baseball, the Colorado Rockies, while not in the midst of playoffs, are having a less-than-stellar regular season. Still, they made history earlier this month, not on the field, but in the press box. On June 4th, Jillian Jibe, who has been attending Rockies games and keeping unofficial box scores since she was a kid, did so as the team's official scorekeeper, the first woman to do so in Rockies history. She's believed to be the fourth woman to ever score a major league game and the first since 2017. KUNC's Alana Schreiber spoke to Jibe about her new role and what this all means for women in baseball. For people who don't know, what exactly is a baseball box score? So a box score is the official way that we keep track of every single event that happens in a game. So essentially we keep track of plate appearances, whether they become an actual at-bat or, you know, if a, if a player walks, for example, that's not considered an at-bat and it doesn't go towards their batting average. So it's just literally a record of every single thing that happens during a baseball game. And then that's where we also keep track of our official decisions. Essentially, if there is a play that's in question, we would decide whether it's a hit or whether it's an error. You know, we also decide RBIs. We decide if a run is earned versus unearned. Those are essentially what I'm referring to when I talk about the decisions. How long have you been keeping score? I grew up with the Rockies. Um, Essentially, as soon as Coors Field opened, I was going to games with my family. And We were not the type of family where it was like, you know, a fun outing and we would be walking around the concourse chatting the whole time. When we went to a game as a family, you had to pay attention to what was going on in the game. We had this little like headset type radio and we would bring that to the game and we would be listening. I would be listening to the game on the radio while actually watching the game just to make sure that I wasn't missing anything or any of the action. So that was kind of how I started thinking about keeping score and thinking about all the real technical things that were happening during the game. And then I really didn't necessarily start actually keeping score until I started playing myself. And I have an older sister who's, um, she's like six and a half years older than me. We both started with baseball, but pretty quickly moved to softball because that was the, you know, trajectory for girls. And, you know, our mom would be keeping the score for those games. Um, and she taught herself using a, an actual official score book. So my mom really was the one that taught me initially, but then I taught myself um, all the real technical parts of it. I've been working in baseball now for 10 years, and I've just kind of over that time really developed my own style because scorekeeping is really an art form. You know, it's kind of unique to every person. Obviously, there's some things that you have to do a specific way, but it's really, it's very unique to each individual. And so I've kind of developed 
my own technique over time and over these thousands of games that I've worked and had to watch very closely. Like you, one of my parents taught me how to keep score. My dad taught me how his dad taught him, where you represent a single by drawing a slanted line. But other people might represent a single by writing 1B for one base hit. What is your method for keeping score? There are so many methods. It's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. But so actually, in this process of preparing to become an official scorer, I've had a mentor who is actually the longest standing official scorer at Coors Field. And so I even took my own method and have adjusted it slightly to match kind of his method because he uses a bunch of different colors for different events. So for example, like a strikeout is purple, a walk is blue, a base hit, you just write in regular pencil. And the reason for the reason behind that is just, it's really easy to pick out different things that happen so that when you're, for example, recording a pitching line, it's really easy to see how many strikeouts a pitcher had, how many walks a pitcher had. So the coloring aspect I have recently added since I got this position, but Honestly, there's even been a lot of things that have been added to official scorekeeping in their most recent years, like an intentional walk, for example, that never used to be a thing. So you just kind of adjust. It's constantly changing ever so slightly. How did you find yourself in this particular position? Kind of the last year has been surreal to me because I never even thought this was a possibility of somewhere that I could go to be an official scorer for Major League Baseball and for the Rockies. That never even crossed my mind as like a possible you know, a possible move for me in the trajectory of my career, um, which I think is kind of crazy in itself that as a woman, I didn't necessarily feel like I could be an official scorer for baseball. But essentially how it came about was I, as I mentioned, I um, have been working in baseball for about 10 years. I got an internship with Root Sports, who used to be the broadcasters of the Rockies games. And it's eventually, it's just kind of evolved into me um, essentially working every different position that major league baseball, the stats side, the stats department, you know, it, I've worked every position that they have at the ballpark. And so over the off season, one of the official scorers um, decided to resign. And so it was actually just my bosses who were like, Oh, wow, Jillian's pretty much done everything else. So I think she could handle this. And so they recommended me for it. I even had to learn, you know, I had to read the rule book cover to cover and really memorize some things. And I had to take a test and then, kind of the rest is history. I I passed the test and shortly thereafter was able to work my first game. What does it say to all the young women and girls out there who want to be involved in baseball? Obviously, I'm not the first female official scorer. The first one was in the 1800s. But the sad thing is, is she disguised her name so as not to lose her credibility as an official scorer. So I think that that's absolutely crazy. I think that technically I am the fourth is what they're saying, the fourth woman official score. But who knows? There could be so many more women who actually have held this role, but who haven't wanted to bring attention to it because they were afraid of what that might mean for them being able to do their job. So I just know I'm not going to be the last. I know there's going to be so many more women that are going to be able to do this position and to be able to be recognized as being able to do it well. Now that I've started this position, I'm starting to feel like maybe the sky's the limit. You know, maybe I could go on and be an umpire. You know, I I really am just excited about the possibilities that this is opening up to women in baseball. That was KUNC's Alana Schreiber talking to Rockies scorekeeper Jillian Jibe. You can catch her scoring her next game on June 28th, the first day that Coors Field will be back at full capacity. And you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. 
Hot on the heels of the true crime podcast trend, this week the Denver Center for Performing Arts launched its own take on the genre. While it's still a work of fiction, The Bright Lights of Denver combines the stuff you like from podcasts like this, history and storytelling, and a whole lot more. It allows audiences to participate at their comfort level. KUNC arts and culture reporter Stacy Nick is with us now to tell us more about the podcast. Hey, Stacy. Hi. So I got to say, I am intrigued by the idea of a theater company doing a podcast. How did this all come together? The Bright Lights of Denver was the winning project from DCPA's Powered by Off-Center program. Each year, Off-Center, the company's experimental theater program, selects one submission from local artists. The goal is kind of to explore new terrain that connects audiences with varying art forms beyond traditional theater. And usually, there aren't a lot of limitations. But this year, with the pandemic, the goal had to really focus in on a project that could both draw people in and keep them safe. So it had to be virtual, or at least have a virtual component. And because they were planning this out like six months before, it had to be flexible enough that it would work no matter what was happening regarding COVID, whether things were locked down or fully reopened. Off-Center curator Charlie Miller told me that all could have made things very difficult, but it actually didn't seem to hamper the artists who submitted ideas. I think one of the things that was very apparent in this past year and a half is that artists are going to make art regardless of the limitations. Obviously, in the performing arts, it's been incredibly challenging because that live interaction between audience and actor or performer had to be mediated through technology. But there was a whole new range of experiences and of art and of storytelling that I saw pop up across the country. And suddenly, you didn't have to be in the same city in order to be able to enjoy it. And that all fits in with a big part of Off Center's mission, which is giving audiences agency in how they engage with the art, whether that's participating in a live action game or taking a chance by sitting down for a one-on-one conversation with a total stranger. As Miller put it, Through COVID, we've learned that you can have meaningful artistic experiences and engagement through a computer and through different technologies. Okay, and that gets us to the winning project, the podcast. Uh, What do we need to know here? The Bright Lights of Denver is a fictional, quote-unquote, true crime podcast styled with elements from popular shows like Serial and Up and Vanished. But also there are interviews with real people talking about Denver's history. The first episode sets the stage with the main character, Ryan Streeter, a freelance writer who's been covering the growth of Denver. Here's a clip from the first episode. I was going to take a chance on writing a book and making a podcast about the Mile High City. Maybe it would be just the thing to help me ride the wave of my viral article. But before I knew it, I was suddenly caught up in another story entirely. A story that involved my friends, a disappearance, and the city I had left behind years ago after college. I'm Ryan Streeter, and much of what you're about to hear in this episode was created or recorded during my first 48 hours back in Denver. A lot has happened over the last couple of weeks. A lot. It may seem a little strange talking about millennials, architecture, and history when someone has gone missing. In order to understand where we are now, it's important that you know where we started. My first instinct was to shut the project down entirely, but with the encouragement of the family, I decided to shift the focus of my podcast. I would collect as much information as possible and hopefully find out what happened to our friend. Our hope was that we could find the key or some piece of information in my notes 
that would unlock this mystery. But before I get ahead of myself, let me go back. Back to the beginning, when I was just dreaming of making a little podcast about the bright lights of Denver. And while listening to a podcast is usually a fairly passive endeavor, this one aims to get you involved. There's a Facebook group for listeners to discuss characters and theories with each other. They might even have some influence over the outcome, which is actually still being written. Also, in every episode, there are three locations that the characters visit that are key to the story. And you can go to those sites and find QR codes that will unlock additional story content and clues. It's kind of like a scavenger hunt. I spoke with Jessica Hensley and Kenny Moten, who co-wrote and directed the podcast, about the move to weave in the locations, and here's how Hensley put it. What we really wanted to do was be able to, you know, encourage people to get out at their own comfort level, but also to engage with our community and to be able to be a patron of a local business or to explore a part of Denver that they haven't seen before. A lot of these places are historical. In fact, all of them are historical. They have some sort of significance either to the city or the building themselves. So. We're really excited to have something that feels like it is for everybody on any comfort level in this crazy year. And it also encourages people to get out and be within our community and to learn a little bit more about the city itself. Well, maybe a basic question, but uh, once the four episodes are over, what happens next? Well, like any good mystery, it's uncertain if we're going to see this case solved by the end, although they did promise that there will be a satisfying payoff with the final episode and even hinted at the possibility of a second season. So who knows? You'll have to follow along to find out. Stacy Nick covers arts and culture for KUNC. The first episode of the Denver Center for Performing Arts new podcast, The Bright Lights of Denver, is out now. You can find it and, of course, this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Stacy. Thank you. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, Denver Pride, one of the country's biggest pride events, looked different last year, going virtual like many others. This year, organizers are planning a hybrid celebration with some in-person gatherings and a virtual parade. The last full Denver Pride Parade as we've come to know them was in 2019, when Grand Marshal Jared Polis made history as the first openly gay governor in the U.S. That year, KUNC's Matt Bloom took a look at our state's journey from being known as the hate state to being known as a leader in LGBTQ rights. Here's Matt. Last month, on the steps of the state capitol, Governor Jared Polis addressed a cheerful crowd of LGBTQ rights advocates. All right, welcome everybody. They were there watching him sign a statewide ban on conversion therapy. The practice is used to change a person from gay to straight. Not only is there no evidence whatsoever that anybody can change their sexual orientation, but in fact, many of these so-called therapies or treatments are counterproductive. It was hailed as a big win for the community, which hasn't always felt at home in Colorado. In just 27 years, we've had a remarkable transformation uh, from what was derogatorily called the hate state to a place where the rights of all Coloradans are respected. But things were much different leading up to the 1992 election. Colorado's Amendment 2 says the state could not have any law where homosexual, lesbian, or bisexual orientation is the basis of any protected status or claim of discrimination. A group in Colorado Springs called Colorado for Family Values ran the ballot measure in direct opposition to cities like Denver and Boulder that had passed local anti-discrimination laws. Equal rights groups led an aggressive no on two campaign, which included Glenda Russell, a psychologist from Louisville. And we started driving toward Denver 
It was snowing. It was crappy weather. On election night, she and her partner attended the watch party. They were optimistic it would fail. But when the results came in, the room fell silent. Amendment 2 won with 53% of the vote. I started crying because even though I had expected it, the, you, you know, you expect lots of things to happen, but when they, even when you fully are sure they're going to happen, when they happen, there's still a, a, a psychological hit. Immediately after, calls for a boycott of Colorado came from around the country, as did the now famous hate state epithet. That's when Russell started studying the social and psychological impact it had on the community. People had a sense of what I called psychic homelessness, like I used to feel safe here, this used to be where I lived, now I don't feel like this is my state anymore. Even though the measure had negative impacts, she says it also led to something positive. So you had incredible mobilization of political groups all over the state. Some people estimate over 100 political groups got born. It was the day gay rights groups in Colorado and across the country were waiting for. After court battles, a challenge to Amendment 2's constitutionality eventually made it to the Supreme Court in 1996. And it was struck down. The first Supreme Court decision ever upholding gay rights. At that point, is Colorado still the hate state in people's minds? I wouldn't say so. That's David Duffield. He's a historian with the Colorado LGBT History Project. So after 96, I mean, it was a very, we entered this period of quiescence or of quietness. The activists working to overturn Amendment 2 needed a new place to channel all their momentum. And wealthy donors started pouring money into candidates and political organizations supporting a nationwide movement for marriage equality. People were working towards slow incremental steps to create a bridge between the rights that married people have and the 1,157 rights that queer people couldn't have under the law then. One example was a state referendum in 2006 to create domestic partnerships for same-sex couples. I'm sick of all the negative ads. John Hickenlooper was mayor of Denver at the time. And then vote yes on referendum I. It's not marriage, it's basic legal rights. But it was defeated with 52% of the vote. It was finally passed in 2008, and it established at a state level domestic partnerships and protections uh, for all people. The next logical step was civil unions. That was the legal recognition of a relationship similar to marriage, but without the title and federal benefits. That same year, the legislature passed statewide LGBTQ non-discrimination laws. Voters also elected one of the first openly gay state senators, Pat Stedman. Colleagues, thank you for this debate. Along with other members of the LGBT caucus, Stedman worked to legalize civil unions. In this 2012 Senate floor speech, he's flanked by hundreds of handwritten cards against what he was doing. I don't care how tall this stack of postcards grows, because in my mind, it is outweighed by this one book that I'm going to set right here. That's the Colorado Constitution and the United States Constitutions. Lawmakers killed the bill that year, but a similar version passed in 2013. Then Governor John Hickenlooper signed civil unions into law in front of a roaring crowd. Despite the momentum, it took a U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 2015 to fully legalize same-sex marriage in most states, including Colorado. It was like living in a very fast-paced river. Everything was changing constantly. David Duffield says Colorado is still feeling the aftershocks of overturning Amendment 2. Last year, voters made history by electing the country's first openly gay governor. They also elected the state's first openly transgender representative. It's taken us a long time to get to where we are, but that's because we've had to be awakened so quickly. 
through so many different things. During last month's bill signing, Governor Polis also made note of another piece of legislation he was putting his name on. We're also signing a bill uh, called Jude's Law. Named after a local student, the bill makes it easier for transgender residents to change the gender marker on their birth certificate or driver's license. Jude testified not only this year, but when uh, she was even younger. How old were you when you started testifying for this bill? Um, I was nine. When she was nine years old, and we know how intimidating that can be. And so does Daniel Ramos. Yeah, personally, I've, I've seen a lot of change. Ramos is standing in line for a piece of rainbow cake that was being served at the ceremony. Uh, you know, I came out in, in northeast Colorado in Sterling at the age of 13, um, and a lot of folks didn't understand what being LGBTQ meant. And now as the director of the advocacy group One Colorado, he says Colorado's a leading state for equal rights under the law, but adds that laws can only do so much. We're finding that, that people are experiencing more discrimination on the street, in their schools, at their workplace, um, and, and even in their houses of worship. And so now is a, is, a, is a rally cry. In other words, there's more work to be done. That was KUNC's Matt Bloom reporting, and that piece was originally aired in 2019. If you're looking to be a part of this year's Denver Pride, it's taking place June 26th and 27th. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.